let's get started again, shall we? Um, hi everyone, my name's uh, Scott. I'm one of the leaders of Grace Church. Um, here's the leader of Grace Kids, who are <laughs> not at Grace Kids. Um, <laughs> um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really glad to be speaking to you, and especially at the start of our um, Advent series. So let me, um, let me pray for us as we, as we get stuck in. Father, thank you. Thank you for Advent. Thank you that Jesus came. Thank you that he revealed you to us, that he redeemed us. Um, and I pray that as we look at Colossians now, that you would um, help us to get a deeper grasp of who Jesus is. Help us to, to believe the truths in this um, passage, which are fairly mind-blowing. And as we believe them, Lord, please, by your Spirit, work them into our lives. Amen. This week, um, Kathy and I started a new Christianity Explored course uh, with a few people from the church. Christianity Explored is a, a kind of uh, a series of, of, of meetings where we eat together and we look at a bit of one of the biographies of Jesus' life, Mark's Gospel, uh, and we, it's a space where people can ask their questions about Christianity and kind of and, and, and dig into it. And, and leading these courses is one of my favourite things to do um, in church for all sorts of reasons. And one of the main reasons is that I just love the questions that get asked at these kind of things. It's not to say that the questions are always easy. <laughs> um, the group this week had some real corkers and I really enjoyed beginning to grapple with some of those ideas. But I just find it refreshing in those contexts to remember that Christianity, um, that you don't have to leave your brain at the door when you're looking at Christianity. That Christianity has credible answers to even the most difficult questions that it's posed with. And I love exploring that with people. <laughs> um, I'd encourage you, if you are looking into Christianity, um, or even if you are a Christian, I'd encourage you to voice those questions that you have. Voice those doubts. Voice them, because I think Christianity is big enough to take them. And I think it's big enough to provide satisfying answers to, to the questions that we have, even those questions that might be going around in your mind right now um, that you have of Christianity. Now, one of the questions that we chatted about this week was just the kind of small question of why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What's the point of all this? It's an important question to answer. The, the, the answer that we give to that question determines the choices that we make. It, the answer that we give to that question determines how we live. And what we do in life will, will flow from what we think the point of life is. Now, not all of us consciously live that way. Not all of us live lives flowing from our sense of purpose. In fact, many of us go through life just doing the next thing because um, it's what everyone else does or because it's how we've been brought up or simply because stuff needs to get done and so we do it. We make reactive decisions. We're not doing things because we're driven forward by an underlying sense of, of purpose and meaning and goal in life. But even that way of living makes a statement, doesn't it, about what we think life is about. The question of, of why we are here is a question that humanity has always grappled with. Now, you might answer it like Richard Dawkins. We're simply here to propagate genes, to, to make sure that the, the human race continues by making more humans and passing on our genes to the next generation. 
Or Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says, the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. Some might say that uh, life has no meaning at all. And so we just have to make the most of what we have. Some Buddhist traditions would say that the goal of, of everything, that the reason we are here is to reach a state of nothingness where we forget ourselves, where we lose our individual identities. I wonder how you respond as you hear some of these different explanations of, of the meaning of life, of why we're here. It might be that some of them are quite attractive to you. Others you might think sound pretty awful. But in reality, if the reason that we are here is something that we can simply decide ourselves, we can choose our own meaning based on what's attractive to us, there's something problematic there. It's problematic because it assumes that there isn't an overarching meaning, so we have to pick a meaning and go with it. You don't have to scratch too far below the surface of that to realise that that's so unsatisfying. True meaning can't just be made up and, and chosen. It needs to be something inherent to life, something that is discovered to have always been there or something that's revealed to us. And Christianity claims to answer that question. It claims that there is a reason for our existence. It claims to give an answer to the question of why we are here. An answer that gives our lives purpose and drive. And the answer that it gives is this. Why are we here? For Jesus. Kathy and I used to work for an organisation um, called UCCF. And um, we used to work with students. We used to help them to share the good news of Christianity with other students. And the tagline of UCCF is living for Jesus and speaking for Jesus. And a friend of ours had a hoodie with this on the front, um, this kind of tagline. Except it didn't quite have that tagline because over the years as it had been washed and stuff, the living and speaking part had, had washed out. So it just said, for Jesus, for Jesus. <laughs> um, which we thought was mildly hilarious at the time. Um, but according to Paul in Colossians 1... It's a legit hoodie to wear. Um, I wouldn't wear it myself necessarily. But um, he says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. All things created for Jesus. Why are we here? For Jesus. Turn with me to Colossians 1 if you've closed your Bibles. Um, it's on page um, 1182 of the, of the Bibles on the table. Um, Colossians 1. And we're just going to read a small section of that and then, and then uh, spend a few minutes unpacking why Paul says that the reason for our existence is for Jesus. So Colossians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read verse 15 to 17, page 1182. It says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, if you're going to make that claim that I just made, that, that the meaning of life, the reason that we are put on this earth is for Jesus... Then, then you need to back that up with why Jesus deserves that. 
And that's just what Paul does in this section. He begins with the question, who is Jesus? It's Christmas. And um, at Christmas time, we have one of the most iconic, one of the, the most recognized images of Jesus, the, the image of him in the manger. When many people think of Jesus, they imagine this image of him, the vulnerable, fragile, cute baby. And that, of course, is part of who Jesus is. There are other impressions that people have of Jesus that are, that are far less um, positive or, or far less accurate. Some people see him as a historical figure who kind of flounced around with long hair, saying vaguely nice things, but would say he's of no consequence, really. And so to say that we're made to live for that Jesus is mildly ridiculous. Others would see Jesus as a myth. Some would say that the Jesus um, that we read about is a, is a fabrication made up by the early church. And so... But, but, but the way of historical evidence is that the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus of history. And so what Paul says here about Jesus is astonishing. Verse 15, the son, that's Jesus, the son is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. What does that mean? And it mo- at its most basic, it means this. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus shows us God, and he does that because he is God. God the Son, eternally begotten of the Father. For all eternity, God has been one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God wanted to make himself known to this fallen, broken world. And so he came to this world. He became a human so that we could see God, touch him, know him. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus came to the world. God came to the world in Jesus to image God. Jesus himself made this claim. He said, I and the Father are one. Elsewhere, he says, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Sometimes you see um, kind of family traits running through a family, don't you? You see similarities in appearance or or turns of phrase or or interests. Sometimes I see things that my children do and I think, oh, you got that from me. And and that's usually not a good thing. Um, but, But the word that we see here used of Jesus is stronger than simply a family trait. It's an exact likeness. If something looks like a horse and smells like a horse and neighs like a horse, then it probably is a horse. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus looks and smells and speaks like God. He is God. And so when you look at Jesus, when you see his actions, his his attitudes, his emotions, when you hear his words, what you are seeing there is God. Jesus is God. And so when we look at him, we we see what God is like. And that means, therefore, that dismissing him as a a nice long-haired bloke from the first century, or even just a baby in a manger, won't wash. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And as you do, if you're anything like me, 
then time and time again, you will be surprised at what God is like. And when you see this Jesus in the Gospels, and then when you hear Paul say that all things are created for him, for the God who is Jesus, it begins to become more palatable. But Paul says more. He says, verse 15, that not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, he is also the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we hear that word firstborn, we hear that with 21st century ears, and we assume that it means, like in a family, the first person who comes along, the first child in that family. But the word here has so much more depth than that. Because in the context that this was uh, written to, the firstborn had, a, had rights, rights of inheritance, rights of status. And it's the rights that are being referred to here that Jesus has. It's nothing to do with order of birth. You see, there wasn't a time when Jesus didn't exist. Even before he became a baby in Bethlehem, Jesus had existed for eternity at the father's side. What Paul is saying in verse 15 is that Jesus has rights over all creation. And in in verse 16 onwards, he goes on to explain why he has those rights. For, he says at the beginning of verse 16, he has these rights, these firstborn rights for the following reasons. First, verse 16, for, he says, in him all things were created. Now people um, looking into Christianity Um, can get themselves tied in knots over this issue of creation. Let me just try and say a couple of things to to clarify it. You see, the, the Bible clearly teaches the what and the why of creation. The what of creation is this. God created everything. Nothing exists. Nothing came apart, came about apart from God. God created everything. The Bible teaches that Jesus was integral to that. In John chapter 1 verse 3 it says that by Jesus all things were made and that nothing was made without him. Here in Colossians it's clear too. It says all things were created by him. Jesus created everything. Everything visible, everything invisible. All powers, all authorities, those on earth, those spiritual authorities. Everything that exists, exists because Jesus made it. So the Bible teaches the what of creation, and it teaches the why of creation. And it says a few things about this. It says that that God made the world in order to love us. It says that God made the world in order to display his glory, just to show something of how incredible he is. And and then uh, the other why that the Bible gives here in Colossians 1 is that creation was made for Jesus. That's why it was made. That's a why of creation. It was made for him. You were made for Jesus. And so the Bible has clear teaching about the what and the why of creation. But where people often get tangled is on the how question. How did creation, how did the universe come into existence? And the Bible doesn't aim to give a scientific explanation of this. It never sets out to describe the mechanics. Even Genesis 1 is written as poetry and not as a science textbook. 
And so some Christians would say that the Bible was made in six literal days, which is a totally legitimate interpretation. Others would say that God created everything, that he did it for the reasons I've just described, but that we can look to science for the answer to the how question. And they might end up considering things like the Big Bang, the, the primordial soup, evolution, and so on, those kind of things. And that's also legitimate to look at that. Because the Bible doesn't aim to give the how question. But what's important for us to see today is this. Jesus deserves the firstborn rights over creation because he made it. He made you. He, he made us. It doesn't matter how that happened. What we need to grasp is the more foundational point. Everything that was made was made by Jesus. So he has rights over everything. And so when we ask the question, why am I here? And when Paul says we're here for Jesus, that life is about him, then this adds a pretty compelling reason why that's appropriate, why that's right. It's for him because he made it. It's his right. Life is for Jesus because he gave us this life. And the purpose that was given to us for our lives by the one who made us was that our lives are to be for him. But Paul says more. You see, the picture of, of the creation of everything that the Bible paints isn't one of that great watchmaker. You might have heard that illustration before. The great watchmaker who intricately designs this beautiful watch, which is so wonderfully designed that he can wind it up, set it going, and stand back and it'll do its thing. That's not the picture of, of creation that the Bible paints. You see, here in Colossians, we see that not only was Jesus there at the beginning, getting everything set up, ma making everything from nothing. Yes, he is the creator of everything, but he also sustains everything. He keeps it going day by day. Look with me at verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The world carries on. Our lives unfold. Our next breath is breathed ultimately because Jesus holds everything together. In him, all things hold together second by second. That's another massive claim, isn't it? But if it's true, then of course he deserves our lives to be for him. At Christmas, we have the image of, of Jesus in the manger, the vulnerable, exposed baby that is dependent and frail. But that image suddenly takes on a whole world of meaning and power and significance when you realize that in that manger is the creator of the manger. In that manger is the creator of the stable, of Bethlehem, of the whole universe. In that manger is the one who holds within his power the capacity and the ability to spin every atom in the universe and to keep them together so that life as we know it can continue. The baby in the manger sustains the manger that holds him. He grants the mother who bore him the, the ability to keep living. What is life all about? What are we here for? We're here for him. 
the, the, the vastly powerful God who chose to become a baby, who chose to make his invisible self visible, the image of God there in the manger. That God became human so that we could know him. But I, I just want to say one last thing. And to do that, I'm going to kind of touch on um, something that we look in more depth in a few weeks' time. And that's this. That God that we've just described, that powerful, creating, sustaining God in Jesus died. Creator, sustainer, everything exists for him and he allowed himself to be crucified. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If it's astonishing to recognize that this creator-sustainer became a baby, then it's all the more astonishing to see that he would choose to suffer and die in the most excruciating way ever invented by the human mind. And he did that to redeem us. We've turned our back on this God. The world is, is for Jesus, but we certainly don't live like that's the case. We live as though the world is for me. It's about what I can get out of it. We may selflessly at times live for others good as well, but so often we don't live for him, the one who made us and loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. Given who he is, and given the, the tiny kind of insignificant ants that we are in comparison, it would be totally fair enough if God looked at this world and said, you know what, I'm just going to stop with this sustaining stuff. I've had it with keeping the mess of this world going. I'm going to wrap up this universe. I'm going to draw a line under it, uh, under creation and under humanity, under the relentless story of hurt and suffering, and selfishness, and, and greed, and destruction. I'm just going to stop it. It would be fair, totally fair enough if he did that, but that's not what he did. He saw the mess. He saw how we've rejected him, and how we're tearing apart his world, and his heart went out to us. And so he came up with a plan. Jesus, God the Son, decided to redeem the world, to, to buy it back from the mess that it, it got into. The cost of that was his own life, his blood. He paid the price for our mess. He took our death penalty. He was crushed so that we could be remade. He redeemed us. And so when you ask that question, why are we here? and the answer that the Bible gives is we're here for Jesus, then what we need is to grow our vision of who Jesus is. It's only then that we'll see why this is such good news that we're made for him. We exist for Jesus. Living for him is the meaning of life. That is good news that when you realize that it means that we exist for the one who, who made us, who sustains us, and who loves us so much that he was willing to die for us to win, him, win us back to himself. Why are we here? That's why. And when we see that, it reorients our whole life. So let me ask you a question. If someone looked at your life today, 
What would they say you were here for? What would they say your life is about? Think about the different areas of your life and answer that question. If the answer to that question is anything other than it's for Jesus, then let me tell you that you're missing out. If your life is lived for anything else, then then you're not living in line with what you're made for. You're off purpose. And when something operates in a way that's different to how it's designed, it never works as well as it should. And that is true for us. But more than that, you're missing out because you're missing out on your life being lived for the one who is totally worth it and who brings joy and freedom and forgiveness and life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish there. But as, I, as I do, I want to just give us a, a, a few moments of reflection um, as Ian comes up um, to play for us the next song.